All right, victory point. So I have to admit, uh, the technology didn't work out so well on Sunday morning when I was preaching. And I got into the office on Monday and Matt said, hey, I was trying to listen to your sermon from Sunday and, uh, and it was just fuzz. So I looked online and that was the case. And then my mom said, hey, Brendan, I was trying to listen to your sermon and all I heard was fuzz. I was like, oh man, I guess it's, just didn't work. So that happens sometimes, and that's okay. But I thought that I would just re-record it. I'm not going to do the whole thing. You know, I'm just going to run through my notes so that um, if you miss Sunday and you've been involved in the Psalms series, um, that you uh, can still stay on track with where we're at as a church. So we're in this Psalm series, and really on Sunday we start off with a video from the Burzmas. Tom and Kristen Burzma are in the Philippines and Tom was just doing a selfie video of him at a discipleship camp that he was leading where new people, about 25 people, um, where new people were coming to Christ, were studying the scriptures, led by people who he's led to Christ. So just a really cool picture of the kingdom of God on earth. Um, if you want to look at that video, I think Matt's going to send that out in the e-news. Um, anyway, my reflections on that video are that Tom is giving glory to God for what has happened. And Tom is worshiping when he's doing that. And that's where the essence of worship is the heart of giving. The generous posture, the generous um, uh, attitude towards God to say, my whole life, all my accomplishments, all my skills, all my characteristics, um, all my, my whole body, my whole time, all my affection and intention, everything is a gift to God. I've been leading worship uh, since I was 16, so that means 15 years. I've been leading worship in church, and one of my reflections from this is, uh, you know, that I've led with just an acoustic guitar in a small room with people who are giving, who have the attitude of giving, of generosity back to God, that all that they have is God's, and so they bring that with them in worship, and they become givers in worship, and Worship is full and vibrant, even with just an acoustic guitar or just voices. I've also been in rooms, big rooms, with lots of lights and big sound and loops and loud guitars and drums where we're just playing our hearts out, but it just seems that no one is worshiping. I can't, I can't make that judgment, but that's just what it appears to me. And so reflecting on that, I go, you know, it's really not about how loud the band is, how cool the songs are, um, how big the church is, or how big the, you know, if there's a critical mass or not. What really matters is discipleship. Are we giving our whole lives to Jesus? And if we are, our worship is full. And if we're noticing that we're not engaging in worship, it's not a sound problem. It's really a discipleship problem. So um, how do we learn how to worship? And we learn how to worship by looking back at the Psalms. The Psalms are our worship, is our worship book, and it teaches us how to worship. And so this morning, or actually not this morning, on Sunday, we read Psalm 37, verses 1 through 9. So here we go, Psalm 37, 1 through 9. I'm going to read it for you. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. 
Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Oh, I haven't been following. Sorry. There's that slide. There's that slide. Wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. So the first thing I wanted to talk about with this psalm is the command, do not fret. And especially down later in the... So these are the first words, is do not fret. And it mentions it's down later um, in the psalm where it says, do not fret, it only leads to evil. I think that's worth paying attention to. Of course, in Hebrew, it doesn't say do not fret. In Hebrew, it says... um, the, word, the Hebrew word is, don't get all heated up. I think one of the best translations for this in our English language is, don't get into a hot mess. Or don't get flustered. Don't get all upset and angry. Don't get all heated up. Don't get all busy and hurried and flustered. And I think this is especially good for us to note because that's a really hard thing to do. Um, we're surrounded in a culture where there's a lot of things to get heated up about, to get in a hot mess over. Um, I'm thinking of some friends I have who are in jobs where their boss or their coworkers drive them crazy. They'll say things that bother them. They'll, uh, the way that they work interferes with them. They've been um, asking things to be changed and they haven't been changed or they're given too much to, to work on more than what they are expected to or they're asked to do things that are outside their job description and it drives them crazy and makes them all flustered and they want to say things and do things that they would probably later regret. I'm also thinking of uh, families, families that, that are getting all heated up, whether there's um, divorce or whether there's um, just family drama, uh, miscommunication, um, abuse, uh, neglect, all these things that get us all heated up and cause all kinds of damage in our family systems and we're tempted to react react to these things and um, and we can get all heated up I'm also thinking of na- uh, in our nation things that uh, cause us to get heated up to get flustered to get in a hot mess um, especially you know uh, inflamed by social media where you've got things being posted or things being done in the political realm uh, you hear about something on the news and you get upset about it and you get all in a hot mess, flustered, that things aren't going the way that you think they ought to go. Things aren't going the way that they um, should go for you or for the people you love or the people you care about. And in all these situations, the temptation is that we react, that we react without thinking that we get all heated up, and all of a sudden, the evil that we perceive in the world, in our jobs, in our family, in the nation, is the same evil that takes root in our heart because we're just getting all heated up about it. We're letting it take root in our heart, and it starts to dictate the way we act. And um, this is the same for the Israelites. They had come out of the, uh, the land of slavery, uh, out of Egypt, and they'd been delivered through the desert where God was... Um, trying to prune them and shape them into his people, worshipers, who all they had was to hang on to 
to Jesus, to not to Jesus, but all they had was to hang on to God's presence in the middle of the wilderness. And yet, um, they constantly failed. And now they're in the promised land. And you would think that they had it figured out by now, that they knew how to live as a people. But even among the Israelites, not even considering their enemies, there was so much injustice. There was so much wickedness and sin. And these people are living next to each other. It's not like you could just easily say, the Israelites are all righteous, and all the nations surrounding them are uh, rebellious and wicked. No, within Israel, there are people who are worshiping other idols, there are people who are, um, who are uh, robbing, there are people who are stealing, there are people who are being hypocrites, who are taking advantage of the poor and the weak. And Jesus was really careful to call this out. Because Jesus was able to perceive that it's not always the people you think that are going to be righteous and not always the people you think that are going to be wicked. In fact, he told a story about this where he was saying to his followers, love your neighbors, especially in this context where there's righteous and wickedness living right next to each other as neighbors. Jesus is saying, love your neighbor. And people say, well, who is my neighbor? Says some smart aleck. And Jesus says, um, I'm going to tell you a story about a man who was walking from the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was a dangerous road where he got um, robbed and beaten, left for dead. And two religious people walk by him and pass on the other side of the road. That's wickedness. That's injustice. That's a wickedness of the world that should cause us to be angry. And then a Samaritan comes by and helps the man. And ends up doing righteousness. His righteousness shines like the dawn. And it's interesting because it's not who you think. The people who are righteous are not the kinds of people you'd think were righteous. Which shines a light on us. How do we know whether we're being righteous people or wicked people? Um, there is a group of people at Princeton Seminary in the, sen- in the 70s who did a study on this. And they took 40, they did a study on the Good Samaritan. They took 40 people, 40 seminarians, and they put them in a room and they said, I want you to prepare for, um, prepare to give a speech. And then once you're ready, we're going to send you one by one over to this other room across, uh, across a quad and you'll give your, you'll give your presentation. What they didn't know was in the middle of that quad was a man who was visibly, and audibly distressed, in need of help. And they wanted to see how many of these kids, how many of these seminary students are going to stop and help this person and be the Good Samaritan. And here's what they found. Oh, and let me also explain something else. They changed up the, um, they gave some variables to try to see, uh, to test their hypotheses. So they gave variables around um, how hurried the students were, the content of their the, the presentation they were going to give, like are they preaching on, some people were preaching on the Good Samaritan, other people were presenting on job opportunities for seminary students. And then finally was um, religious beliefs and intentions. So to dis, um, discern, uh, you know, are the people who stop any more religiously committed than other ones? So here's what they found. It says, of the 40 subjects, 16, that's 40%, offered some form of indirect or direct aid to the victim. 24, that's 60%, did not. The percentages of subjects who offered aid by situational variable were, for low hurry, 
63% offered help. Sorry, for low hurry, 63% offered help. Immediate hurry, 45% offered help. And high hurry, 10%. No correlation between the various measures of religiosity and any form of the dependent measure ever came near statistical significance. Thinking about the Good Samaritan did not increase helping behavior, but being in a hurry decreased it. So I made a little graph to make this more easy to understand. Of the seminarians who were in a hurry, the people who were in low hurry, um, 63% of the time they stopped. That means when the, when the um, proctor said, all right, you know, it's time to go over to the other room, they said, you've got five minutes or so, but you might as well head it over right now. They walked across the quad, and 63% of the time, those people stopped. Medium hurry, 45% of the time, they stopped and helped. The people who were in a high hurry only helped 10% of the time. So I'm going to flip this graph now to think about it another way. Think about it in the perspective of the man who needed help. You know, um, 37% of the time, it was the low hurry people who stopped. Meaning, um, sorry, 37% of the time, the low hurry people passed them by. 55% of the time, the medium hurry people passed them by. And 90% of the time, the seminarians, the righteous people, quote-unquote righteous people, who had every intention to be a clergy, who thought they were a good person, but who were simply in a hurry, 90% of the time, those seminarians committed injustice by passing them by. So it makes me ask the question, where am I in my life? Even if I'm the most well-intentioned person, who considers myself righteous, if I'm in a hurry, statistics show that 90% of the time I'm ignoring the good that God wants me to participate in. And 90% of the time, I am participating in the injustice and the wickedness of the world. In a hurry. So the psalm says, do not fret. Don't get heated up. Don't get all frazzled. Don't get in a hot mess. Don't get in a hurry. Don't rush to a response, to a reaction. It only leads to evil. The same evil that we are resisting finds its home in our own hearts and we become part of the evil in the world. And that's really convicting for me. I think this actually comes from the, the desire to hurry, to get from one place to the next. I think comes from uh, a, like a... Um, It comes from a theology of, like, uh, absence, that God is not here. That, that we have to do everything. We have to react and respond, and we have to take responsibility for all the evil in the world and do something about it right now because God really isn't doing anything about it. And he's not even here. He's way up in the clouds somewhere, and he doesn't really care, and he can't really do anything about it. So I think this is actually practical atheism, going on. I think that's why we get so upset about things. But the psalm says, well, let me just back up a second. This, what I'm talking about, this atheism is actually embedded in the translation of the psalm. Our English translation says, 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. So when I try to take this verse apart, what my mind is imagining is that God is some north star way off in the distance and I'm going to commit my way to him. So he's way out there and it's up to me to make my path line up with him. Right? But that's not actually what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says this, Gol al-Adonai darkeha, which means roll your path on the Lord or roll on the Lord your path. So what does this mean? This means that God is not just a north star. No, God is right beneath my feet. I can trust him. I am trusting him. I am in Christ. I am in his will. I'm in his presence all the time, no matter where my feet go. So God is here. God is not somewhere out there. God is right here. And he will do it, it says. God will do it. So I don't have to get all heated up about it. God is going to take care of it. And as I think about that, I, I realize that the whole psalm is about this, is about trusting God, not taking it upon myself to try to react to the evil in the world, but to trust in God and creatively respond. So here's the first thing it says. It says, um, trust in the Lord. And I'm thinking about this with our uh, recent staff transitions. And I'm going to try, this is the part that I'm going to try to go through quicker, okay? But staff transitions, there's a temptation to go, there's not someone to watch children's ministry, there's not someone to do student ministry, so we have to make something work as fast as possible. We've got to hire somebody, anybody, to come in and do this work. But we trust God. We trust that God is here and he will do it. And so Matt has set a real tone for that on staff to say, we're not just going to jump to reactions. We're going to sit on God and wait for his direction. And that's what we're doing. Another phrase that comes up is dwell. Dwell in the land and graze in safety. Dwell, this uh, idea of dwell um, was uh, brought to light for me this past weekend when I was backpacking with some of my best buds and we went hiking together and I remember coming up the top of a peak and realizing that I was right where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be anywhere else. Just this beautiful vista of the mountains. And I thought, this is where God has placed me for now and I don't want to be anywhere else. I think so often our, our busyness, our hurriedness, also our, our hot messiness, <laughs> Our uh, flustering comes from having the sense that we're not where we ought to be, that we ought to be somewhere else than where we are. But the psalm says, dwell in the land and graze in safety. And that is to say, where I have put you, I want you to stay. I don't want you to wish you were somewhere else. I don't want you to try to escape this. I want you to stay right here and dwell in it and experience my presence in the season where you are without trying to escape. The next word is delight. And here I think of Psalm 1, this concept of delighting. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the seat of mockers. Sorry, sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. 
this idea of delighting in the Lord, putting all of our attention and affection in the presence of the Lord, around, you know, digging into scripture, uh, spending time in contemplation and prayer, being in the presence of the Lord, abiding in Christ. That means that we become like trees planted by streams of water, soaking up God's presence, that we settle ourselves into God's presence instead of reacting and responding on our own. We, we attach ourselves to Christ. We, we uh, graft ourselves into Christ. We are grafted into Christ. And we can rest in that and know that whatever happens, God is with us and we are in God. Be still. Be still. The, the Hebrew word actually means um, be silent. But be still reminds me of another psalm, Psalm 4610, which says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. This command to be still, to be silent, to stop fighting, to stop warring, um, but to just be still and be silent, which also reminds me of another verse, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like... He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Twice it says he did not open his mouth. And this is Isaiah prophesying about the suffering servant, who, uh, which is a prophecy about Jesus. That was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was a man of affliction, a man of sorrow, who was the incarnate one to dwell with us, and he experienced suffering and pain, most notably so on the cross. And yet, he never opened his mouth. Not that he never said anything. We all know Jesus said things. But he never protested. He never cursed God. He accepted his lot. And he was still before the Lord. He waited patiently on the Lord, which is the next one. Waiting patiently. Um, Waiting patiently has to do with um, this, this word in Hebrew, I know I'm getting into a lot of Hebrew words here, but it's really fun. Um, this Hebrew word is to say, um, it's kind of like dance on top of, or turn around on top of, or tremble on top of. This idea of trembling uh, as a, on top of God has a few different meanings for me. One is that we don't, when we're experiencing something that makes us angry, we bring that to God. We don't keep it from God. So to tremble on top of the Lord is to say, God, this thing is really bothering me, and I'm really upset about it. It's to lament. Uh, I think a lot of us, our prayer life is really pristine. Like we bring God our best selves. We bring him our most polished selves, and we don't bring to him the things that we don't think he would accept, like our anger. But to wait patiently on the Lord is to tremble on the Lord and to tell him the things that really make us upset. Another way that wait patiently or trembling on the Lord is significant for me is um, for mission. That when we're seeking to expand the kingdom of God, to partner with God, to see the kingdom of God grow, there's a temptation to just keep pushing, keep pressing, and to never let up. This summer, our missional community took a break, mostly because our school was out of session, the school that we serve at. And so we took a break, and... Every summer, it's like, okay, what's going to happen with our missional community when we take a break? Is it just going to fizzle out? Well, we took a break, but somebody started a volleyball league. People started inviting each other over for dinner, inviting new people. So our group has grown, and we've seen each other 
it feels like almost every day, every other day, we get together in some fashion. So we waited patiently on God, and He's doing His own thing. God is God is up to things. God is at work, and we don't have to try to do everything. We can rest in Him. The final thing that this Psalm says is this: Trust in the Lord and do good. The Hebrew here is "asay tov," which can also be translated as "make something beautiful." Make something beautiful. Or contribute, you know, do something good. Later in the psalm it says this, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. There it says it again. Do good. Asay tov. Create something beautiful. This is to say, shift from the perspective of being a victim, being uh, a martyr, so to speak, and begin to view yourself as a co-creator with God. That you are placed in this situation as difficult as it may, as it may be to contribute something beautiful to the world, even when you're feeling angry. And that's transformative. I think immediately of my friend Dawood, who is a Palestinian Christian. Here's a picture of him. He's living in Palestine, and his land um, is being threatened by the powers that be who want to take it away from him. And, and, um, and they are shutting down his electricity. They cut his electrical lines that are leading to this little hillside in his land. They are um, bulldozing the road in so he can't receive shipments. They cut off his water. And he and his family have been living on this land his whole life. And his family lineage goes back on this piece of property for the last 500 to 700 years they've been here. This is his inheritance. This is, this is all that he has. And he has every reason to get upset and to get angry they get frustrated to, to react violently even. Um, but instead, he's trusting in the Lord. And he makes these signs that say, we refuse to be enemies. He treats them as friends. He continues to extend the hand of friendship to the people who want to take his land away. And that inspires me because he is creating something beautiful. He's planting vineyards. He's uh, raising chickens. He's painting rocks with rainbows. He's uh, raising olive trees and making olive oil. He's dug, ci- he's dug cisterns. He's building um, solar panels. He's, he's living in a cave on his own property and creating something beautiful out of his land. And I think that's a really a great picture for all of us. Ultimately, this is most exemplified in Jesus. He says this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You are familiar with the generosity of our master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor, and we became rich. Jesus on the cross did not just stay silent. He also was saving us. He was executing salvation for us. He made us rich. He gave us the gift of new life on the cross. He didn't just stand up on the cross as a victim. He gave it, he stood up on the cross as a giver, someone who is generously making new life possible for others. And we who've been given that gift are also given that ministry in our lives to make that possible for others. So 
Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. That's Christ Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who gave his life for others, to do good works. There, that word again, do good. If this was in Hebrew, it would be asetov. It's in Greek, but if it was in Hebrew, it would be asetov. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means all those who are in Christ have been created, crafted, beautifully constructed, in order to be part of God's redeeming work in the world. Not to be reactive, not to be um, violently, you know, seeking retribution to our enemies, not to be uh, in a hot mess, not to be all flustered, but to trust in God and to begin creating something beautiful out of our situation. So, as you reflect on it, um, I would ask a couple of questions. Um, One is... um, how do you respond in fearful situations? Do you fret? How quickly do you heat up? How quickly do you get into a hot mess or flustered? What kinds of things trigger you? And what are the ways that you have um, let the evil of the world kind of embed itself in your heart through fear? What are the things that have kind of gotten lodged in you? And how have you been complicit in that? Secondly, what does it look like to trust in your life? What is a lifestyle of trusting, dwelling, delighting, being still, waiting on the Lord? What does that look like for you? Being silent and dwelling in Christ, abiding, and taking a, taking a pause when these things happen, when these things make you want to flip out. Third is, um, what does it look like for you to create beauty, to do good in your world, even amidst places and uh, relationships, situations that would um, would make you want to react? What does it look like to instead view yourself not as a, a victim, but as someone who's placed there to create something beautiful, to do something good? So I hope that was a blessing for you guys. I, I have no idea how long that took, but um, I was trying to go through that fast, but maybe I didn't do such a good job. I hope this was helpful for you, for you guys, um, and, and uh, be blessed today. Thanks for listening.